Welcome to the first episode of the World's Last Night podcast. My name is James Thayer, and I'm kicking this off with a series uh, that I'm calling James Reads the Entire Bible with Commentary. So yeah, that's right. I'm going to be reading the entire Bible and uh, give you some commentary. So I'm going to add some history, some science, some philosophy in there, just stuff that I've learned over the course of uh, my life. And hopefully, by listening, you're going to learn something new. Now, this isn't the only series I'm going to do. I'm going to do many other ones and hopefully do some interviews and whatnot. But um, I thought that this would be a great way for me to actually learn and study Scripture better because I actually remember things better whenever I say them out loud. So, uh, with no further ado, I'm going to jump right in. And we're starting in Genesis chapter 1 today. So, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, <laughs> I'm already going to stop right there because uh, that's actually a huge statement. And unless you knew the history behind um, modern thought on the creation of our universe, you wouldn't really catch that. But uh, for the longest time, the scientific community was pretty consistent on this theory called the steady state theory that our universe is eternal and has always existed. But, you know, one day along came a, actually, believe it or not, a Catholic priest who came up with this theory that, you know, maybe the universe actually had a beginning. Now, he wasn't just a uh, Catholic priest. Um, I believe he was also a physicist. He was a scientist of some sort. And he basically postulated that the universe has a beginning and I bet that we will be able to find so-and-so evidences. This is what the theory sort of developed into as a couple other people jumped on board and propagated it. And they basically said, um, if my theory is correct, then scientifically speaking, there should be some of these evidences that we're going to uncover, which is amazing because it's sort of like predicting that uh, your theory is going to be proven correct one day. Now, this theory initially was rejected by the scientific community outright. Um, for the most part, people thought it was preposterous, and especially the secular community was against it because the implications of a universe that has a beginning are kind of scary if you are an atheist, for example. Um, and I'll get into why that is. Interestingly enough, this theory would eventually be called the Big Bang Theory, but it was called that by the opponents of the theory in an attempt to mock it. So that's kind of hilarious, that knowing what present-day scientists believe. But there was a period in there where it was, it was mocked as ridiculous. Now, we now know that it's probably true because of things such as redshift, which we observe in the universe. It basically shows us that the universe is expanding. And so matter is actually accelerating apart from each other. Um, and so it's not only expanding, but it's expanding at an increasing, accelerating rate. And so if you could imagine the beginning of that with all the matter coming together, put it in reverse, go back in time, coming all together into a singularity, uh, which would be just be a point, basically, of immense potential and energy, all the energy in the entire universe, um, you could imagine what it would be like whenever that got kicked off. You know, a big bang, an explosion of matter. So this theory, eventually we, we discovered uh, background radiation and enough evidence to persuade the scientific community. Uh, now keep in mind, this theory was affirmed by the Pope. 
the Catholic Pope before secular scientists would agree that this was true. Um, so this really opened the door to theism for a lot of uh, scientists, cosmologists, and a philosophical uh, argument for the existence of God was created kind of based off of this, which is has uh, three parts. But the first part is basically, oh, and this is called the uh, cosmological argument that later became uh, expanded upon by a man named William Lane Craig called the Kalam cosmological argument. But basically it has three parts. The first one is whatever begins to exist has a cause. The second part is the universe began to exist. And so the conclusion is the universe had a cause. Now, that's pretty uh, pretty mind-blowing, and it's, it's a huge statement that's being made. Now, if you think about the first uh, premise, whatever begins to exist has a cause, it's hard for us to imagine uh, something that does begin to exist that doesn't have a cause. So that's actually really difficult for people to argue against. Now, the second one, uh, the universe began to exist, you can try arguing, arguing against that like people did with the steady-state theory, but we are actually piling on more and more evidence to show that our universe had a beginning. So the conclusion that uh, because the universe began to exist, then it had a cause points to something causing it. And so people like William Lane Craig jump on this, and he's a theologian, by the way, but they, they jump on this concept because it's actually a very great argument for the existence of God, that there was a creator that spoken into being, or um, the un, unmoved mover who, uh, cr who caused the universe to exist. And so this first passage, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is actually reflected in modern science in a way. At least philosophically speaking, it is very credible. Verse number two, now the earth was formless and empty. Dark covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Okay, also totally interesting if you think about uh, Earth's history. And so now it's saying the Earth was formless, empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. So now you have a formless Earth. What does that mean, and what do we know about the history of our Earth, or what do we perceive to know about the history of our Earth? Well, we believe that at one point it was formless. It uh, probably at one point was gaseous, um, a lot like parts of Jupiter are, you know, gaseous uh, and super ridiculously hot. Um, and so it's interesting that, you know, scripture calls it formless. To imagine that, uh, you kind of have to think of a gaseous planet. Um, it's empty. Sure. Okay. Darkness. Sure. Okay. And so here we're we're basically saying that you know this in the in the Genesis story where before the sun is created um, or the stars are created. Okay. The spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Okay. Boom. So we have God. Uh, and then God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. Now, interesting. Back to the Big Bang thing. You have uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens and uh, you know the four four horsemen of the New Atheist movement. Um, there's a video on YouTube where they're all sitting around, and Hitchens kind of brings this up, and he's like, well, yeah, um, you know, if you really think about it, uh, Christians kind of are on to something where um, they say that, uh, you know, God said, let there be light, and bang, there it was. And he's referring back to the Big Bang Theory, and of course, the other three guys pile on to him about how ridiculous that is and whatever. 
Hitchens was always, uh, he's dead now. He died. But um, out of those four, he was sort of my favorite. He was the most humble out of them. And that's, I don't know if that's saying a lot or not, <laughs> but I'll keep reading. Uh, we're still in verse three. And there was light. Okay. God saw that the light was good. Awesome. So God is into what he's making. Cool. And God separated the light from the darkness. Okay. Boom. Huge um, philosophical statement there because uh, darkness is merely the absence of light. Darkness has no form. It doesn't really like exist as um, a substance. Uh, now, there's dark matter in the universe, which we don't know too much about, in which case you could argue, well, it's a lot of substance. But as far as we're talking about um, light and dark, like in a closet with a lamp on, the darkness is just the absence of the light. Now, the same is, is uh, true with heat and cold, where uh, cold doesn't really exist. Um, it's a vacuum of heat. It's the lack of heat. Because you know that heat transfers uh, from basically hotter to uh, where it's absent. It tries to fill the spaces, or what we would call cold. So, okay, God's making this delineation. Reminds me of a C.S. Lewis uh, bit where he basically says that, you know, how would I know um, that a line is crooked if a straight line didn't exist? And I forget, that might be mere Christianity, but he's, he's sort of arguing for back in his atheist days, like, I had this weird uh, idea that, you know, things were wrong. <laughs> Not really weird, very common. Things are wrong in, in the world. And, you know, most people say that. And then he basically says, well, God actually used this argument that I was trying to think against his existence to help me show that, um, well, how do you even have a, a notion of what good is without the bad existing? Um, or, excuse me, if you see bad, how do you know what good is? If you see the crooked, how do you know that straight exists? And so uh, Lewis argues that basically this uh, uh, philosophy was sort of turned against him and it gave more credence to that, hey, straight lines exist. Hey, true laws exist. Truth exists. Good exists. So, okay, we'll keep reading. Um, God, God called the light day and he called the darkness night. Evening came and then morning, the first day. This is weird. And you have to remember that Genesis is, uh, it's, it's, argued whether it's literal or not um you do have people that believe in like literal seven day uh creation or six day creation story um i'm not one of them and uh reason being is because well the as you'll see the sun isn't even created until like the third day um but also if you if you look at uh the word day here in the Hebrew, it's the word yom, and all it means is time period. It doesn't necessarily mean 24-hour period. And you can also look elsewhere in Scripture where it says a day to God is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. Uh, in other words, God is timeless. If he created time at this point, right, and actually time doesn't exist yet um, in the Genesis story, we'll get there in a second. But if he created time, that means he's outside of it. He's a lot like a person, you know, when you read a novel, you can you can skip to the end if you want to. You can skip to the middle. You can 
go back to the beginning. You can read it out of order. You can pause it, put it down, go do your stuff for a few years, come back to that novel, pick it up. God's the same way. He sort of sees all of time uh, as the present. It's not like it's future and past. So I don't necessarily believe Genesis is a literal 24-hour periods. I don't think scientifically that we have evidence for that either. Um, so that's why it's kind of weird there. And so people take Genesis uh, very differently as far as how they approach it. You know, some people think it's nothing but symbolism. I disagree with that. I fall somewhere in the middle, which makes both people kind of angry at me. Okay, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. I'm assuming we're talking about clouds and oceans. And so, we're, you know, I told my nephew the other day, he asked what clouds were. And I basically said, well, it's water from the oceans evaporate, turns into a gas, gets heated, right? Evaporates, turns into a gas floats in, in the sky as clouds collects until it's too heavy, too dense, and it has to fall back down to the earth or gets cooled off, I guess. Um, who knows exactly what he's talking about? Water in Genesis springs up from the ground. It doesn't even rain for until, I guess, Noah's age or whatever. I guess we'll get to that when we get to it and talk about it. So God made the expanse separate the water, okay. Um, called the expanse sky. Very cool. Evening came and then morning the second day. All right. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. Okay, cool. And um, so at one point, scientifically speaking, we do believe the entire world was covered in water. So this is accurate, uh, as accurate as, you know, Genesis, we believe, was inspired uh, uh, to given to Moses to write down, inspired by God to write down. He wasn't there. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Moses wasn't there if he wrote this. Um, but it's pretty darn accurate to what we do believe, which is that at one point the entire world was covered in ocean, <clears throat> was covered in water. And so now that water's receding, I'm assuming going into the sky, we have this expanse, um, and land is appearing. Tectonic, tectonic plates are shifting, obviously. That's how we get mountains. They collide with each other and they push upwards when they do that. So now we're getting land, uh, volcanoes, you know, we're getting magma coming up from beneath the surface of the earth, uh, shooting up onto the earth, building up mounds, building up density. So we're getting land to appear. Now, scientifically speaking, before all the water, we believe that the planet was gaseous. Then it went to solid or whatever, or liquid, and then a solid and volcan volcanoes, no atmosphere yet. So we're getting pounded by meteorites, uh, very hot wasteland of ash. Um, we have water appearing, um, and then we're going to have land. So uh, I guess we'll get to the animals here in a little bit, but the, the history of our world sort of lines up with this. Okay. Evening came, then morning the second day. Okay. Um, all right. Well, God, God called the dry land earth, and he called the gathering of the water seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. That's accurate. Uh, according to what we know scientifically, we have plants next, because when you have water, plants can survive. Now, I told you that the earth at one point was covered in volcanoes, um, and so it had lots of CO2. What do plants live off of? CO2 and water. There's no oxygen yet, really. 
but plants are coming along and they get really wicked big. Earth is going to be covered in plants. They're going to be huge. And this is where we get most of our um, fossil fuels from. It's not from dead dinosaurs. It's from dead vegetation, enormous trees. Um, that's where we get most of our uh, fossil fuels from. And so, okay, now God's making all these plants. Very cool. He's creative. He's got an order. He's got a system. Um, he's working it towards being able to make animals. Because as you probably could guess, without plants, you don't get animals. So here we go. Um... God saw that was good. Let's see. Seed-bearing plants, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and tree-bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So there's lots of different fruit, tree-bearing, uh, I'm sorry, fruit-bearing trees. Later when we were in the Garden of Eden, we know that there's a fruit there. Um, it's not the only fruit that exists. There's apparently a lot according to their kinds. Um which would just be their species. I mean, that's a better word for updated in plain English would be their species. Evening came in the morning, the third day. All right, third day. All right, then God said, let there be lights in this expanse of the sky to separate day from night. All right, so now we're getting weird, right? Because we have these three days. We have light. Um, some people just say that's like the light of God or whatever. But, uh, but now here we are on this like fourth day and God's finally making stars. Well, we don't have a measure for time without stars. All of our measurement for a 24-hour period, for a second, all of it's broken down from stars. And uh, our calendars, you know, seasons, constellations, we basically uh, plan it around stars, including our sun, obviously, for a 24-hour day cycle. So I think that's another reason not to believe these are literal days. Um, but... To each their own. It's not like it's not like you're going to hell because <laughs> you believe Genesis is literal or not. Not that big of a deal, but that's just me. Um, let's see. Let there be lights. So we're at, we're currently on verse uh, second verse half of verse fourteen. They will serve as signs for festivals and for days and years. Okay, so yeah, there we go. Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for festivals and for days and years. So okay, God creates time right there. There will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. That's the sun. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to have dominion over the day and the lesser light to have dominion over the night, as well as the stars. The lesser light here being referred to is the moon. And now we know that the moon doesn't actually generate any of its own light. It doesn't do fission like our sun does. And instead it reflects uh, the light of the sun back on the earth. So... A lot of actually really cool imagery with that because it's sort of like as Christians, you don't really have any light in yourself. Rather, you reflect Jesus's, the sun's light um, back to others. So we're kind of like moons, but okay. And it was so God made the two great lights. Great, great, great. Made the stars. Awesome. God placed them in the expanse of the sky. And okay, I say awesome. I just sort of brushed over the fact that he made billions or trillions of stars like with this spoken word. Um, it's pretty amazing. Okay, universe is big. God placed some expanse of the sky to provide light. Oh, I got a little personal here. Oh, no, it didn't. To provide, provide light on the earth. To dominate the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. And once again, this order is actually, I guess, ecologically correct. 
um, as far as what we know, scientifically speaking, which is like uh, aquatic creatures came first. Before land animals, we had aquatic creatures. And so, I mean, it's a hard stretch for me to imagine that Moses just wrote these down in order on accident, in the correct order on accident. Um, I do believe that it was divinely inspired that he was told this order of, of that God created. Now, we're going to see later in Genesis that it gets a little flipped. <laughs> um, but in any case, yes. So we get the large sea creatures and uh, everything living, every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. So he also created every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the sea. Let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, and then morning, the fifth day. All right, verse 24. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Boom. So now we're getting some mammals. <laughs> uh, probably our dinosaurs. Um, and once again, I mean, we're talking about things that in this recorded Bible our time periods or days, but, uh, scientifically speaking, you know, we believe dinosaurs lived 65 million years ago. So it took a long time for these to go from sea creatures on our planet to having these land creatures on our planet to finally mammals. Um, meanwhile, they're all eating the vegetation. The, that vast vegetation that we used to have on our planet has produced a lot of oxygen. And so our animals are massive. Because they're they're amped up on oxygen, um, so they're huge, and that's why you know we have dragonflies back then with eight foot wingspans or whatever. Um, all right, so he made all the wildlife corner of their kinds. Verse twenty six. Then God said, "Let us make a man in our image." Uh oh. <laughs> uh oh, Muslims and Jewish people. Um, there is well, Muslims believe this is corrupt anyways, but Jewish people, um, there is definitely. Uh, a roadblock here for monotheistic, um, including ourselves as Christians, monotheistic religions. Monotheistic meaning uh, you believe in one God, as opposed to polytheistic, like the Greeks or Romans believed in multiple gods. So God is saying, let us, not let me, he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Oh, man. So this... Uh, verbiage doesn't really make sense unless you concede the existence of the Trinity and you believe in the Trinitarian God, which is three persons, one God. And it's interesting that it says, then God said, so singular, God said, let us make. It wasn't then the gods. It wasn't the Greek gods or whatever. It's let God, God said, let us make man in our image. So I think this is actually great evidence of the Trinity being, um, true good solid theological doctrine because it's what makes sense between our alternatives of interpreting this passage you go to john which eventually we'll get there in like a year you go to john and uh you know in the beginning was the word the word was god the word was with god all things were created by him through him for him talking about jesus so you have jesus the holy spirit and god living in as one the trinity prior to creation and so 
God is basically saying, hey, let's make man according to our likeness, our image, which isn't just like, oh, we're bipedal and whatever. Uh, it's more like, hey, mankind's going to be intelligent like God is. Mankind is going to be um, uh, interested in, in loving and being loved. If you can imagine the Trinity itself having pure love among, in, in, in itself, um, that's why, you know, scripture says God is love because you need a beloved. I uh, didn't make that clear, but to love, you have to have a beloved. You have to have an object of the love or else love doesn't exist, which is another evidence for me as to why God is a Trinitarian being, even though we can't wrap our mind around that, wrap our minds around that. Um, but yeah, so making a, making man in our image, it also indicates, Hey, he's going to be a sub creator. That's what Tolkien called uh called us is sub creators which means god made all of the he's the creator he's the one that made all the materials and we're just taking the materials and we're sub creating after him there's nothing that we can make that he doesn't hasn't already you know a thought could exist but he allows us to play our part and be sub creators of what he's made so i'll keep keep reading they will rule the fish of the sea the birds of the sky the livestock all the earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth so to me that means hey he's going to be an apex predator um, all these things are going to be under his dominion. Um, and he's also going to be because rulers have to be charged with responsibility for these things. And I, as you can see later, when God makes Adam, he charges him with responsibility for creation. So that doesn't mean that you can abuse all these things. It doesn't mean you can abuse animals. In fact, in Proverbs, it talks about how an unrighteous man abuses his animals. Um, it doesn't mean that you can abuse the earth and pollute it. Uh, on the contrary, if you are a ruler, it means you are charged with taking care of the things you rule over. And that includes human mankind taking care of our planet. So, okay, we'll keep going. Um, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Uh-oh, again. Um, and Jesus comes back and talks about this because now you're, now you're looking at, okay, God created man in his own image. Cool, we talked about that. He created him in the image of God. All right. Yes, he created them male and female, which means that um, God is the one that created the, the gender binary um, that so many people today uh, rail against, um, which is basically there's two, there's two sexes. And it's not that God has like sexual organs. <laughs> he made them male and female in the sense that he gave some masculine traits and others feminine traits. And so we know from, you know, psychology, holy cow, scientific brain scans, there's over a hundred difference between the male and female brains. Um, and size is only one of them. It doesn't have to do with intelligence, but usually the differences come down to um, how they problem solve, deal with situations differently. Um, you have things like uh, women are better at multitasking. Men are more uh, better at a single task. And as such, they can funnel their ambition. Um, and so <clears throat> you also have things like conscientiousness, assertiveness. And these are typically broken down between different male uh, men and women on average um, have different levels of these traits. Now, at the same time, traits that we typically consider uh, feminine or masculine have lots of crossover. So men who might have a lot of masculine traits still have some feminine traits and vice versa. And there's different um, 
outliers for each that might have a lot of those traits. But in my opinion, what this means is that when God made the male and female, it means that God has both masculine and feminine traits. And when they come together, they make a very powerful team and, uh, and come closer to the image of God. Um, and so I think it's actually kind of, kind of beautiful how he decided to set that up. Okay, so uh, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Okay, so God is saying, be fruitful. What does that mean? Uh, we see in the New Testament, uh, you know, you want to produce good fruit. It means you're, you're a producer. It means you create, you make, you um, advance, you push forward. Uh, multiply, obviously that means have children. Fill the earth, have lots of children, and subdue it. Build your towns, build your roads, um, cut down some trees and build some houses, you know. Invent irrigation and indoor plumbing and electricity. None of these things are sinful. Um, we'll keep going. Uh, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. So here he's, he's sort of talking about all these different um, plants that he's given to him. Um, for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. What's the breath of life? Uh, that is what God has gifted mankind. Okay, I'm going to get off on a little tangent here, but I'll try to make it really brief. Uh, what's it called? So in Lord of the Rings, um, basically Tolkien had this idea. Uh, oh, the flame imperishable is what he called it. And basically it is what... Uh, El Iluvatar, who's basically God in the Lord of the Ting Lord of the Rings universe, gave gifted all all creatures, um, and the flame imperishable is basically free will, and um, and so basically, uh, obviously, in Lord of the Rings, the ring itself is not sin; it is slavery. It's power to subdue and take away the flame imperishable. Flame and perish? Imperishable? Okay, whatever. Um, to subdue it in uh, in the creatures that basically God created. So, uh, to bend, basically, take away their free will and bring them down to slavery, which is what sin does to us. I mean, it's, it's a pretty amazing... Um, it's a pretty amazing analogy. It's not really an analogy, but metaphor <laughs> of... Uh, what sin does, but in any case, um, that's what I considered, you know, everything having the breath of life. That's something that God has granted. It, since we are made in God's image, it gives us intrinsic value because we contain the breath of life because, uh, we bear his mark. And as such, we have value. And I mean, that's the whole basis of like the United States <laughs> Declaration of Independence and Constitution, where it says, you know, being created in the image, uh, uh, being endowed by their creators with unalienable rights or inalienable rights, which means in the Declaration of Independence, you know, then they go on to say, well, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, basically saying that uh, 
those rights can't be taken away by governments, by kings, because they've been given by a higher authority, i.e. God. Okay, so God gave this breath of life. Um, I've given every green plant for food. So God gives them green plants for food. He actually doesn't let them eat animals. And uh, you don't know that until you get to the story of Noah later in Genesis. But it's interesting. We were all vegetarians in the beginning. Cool. I guess. Yeah. I thank Jesus for bacon on the daily. So, um, all right. But anyways, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It was very good. Nice. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. Cool. So, that's chapter one. Um, I hope you enjoyed my reading and ramblings, and maybe you learned something. Um, that's all stuff off the top of my head. I might next time read it beforehand and sort of come up with some things to talk about. But, uh, in any case, I love Genesis 1. It's jam-packed with cool theology, um, musings on science, and um, just being able to talk about the accuracy, being able to talk about what it means to be made in the image of God. I love it, love it, love it. But there's even uh, some cooler topics coming up in Genesis that we get to explore that I'm stoked about, especially whenever we get Adam and Eve and sin enters the world, and we have our first prophecy of Jesus Christ within the first couple chapters of Genesis Pretty amazing stuff. Can't wait until next time uh, you get to join me um, for this world last, World's Last Night production of Reading Through the Entire Bible with James. All right. You have a great day. Bye.